This is going to be, is this going to be episode 201? Ooh. Uh, I think it is. Maybe 202, because we have uh, Berkey's first. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I need to edit that still. Oh. So. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, formerly known as the Dissect Podcast, welcome to the, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the nonprofit podcast. Uh, Michael. Mark. Connor McCrillis. Um this is going to be a fun story, mostly because when we were just talking, he said, yeah, I, I heard about you on the, uh, or I heard your podcast with Chris Caloose on the Normal Cast, mm. and then I went looking for the Dissect podcast, but the name had changed, so I couldn't find it, but then something, and... Uh, I, was, I was wondering why, like, how long after we're not the Dissect podcast do we have to, like, not... Still refer to it? Yeah. I don't know. I just thought it was going to be kind of funny and clever wasn't it fun and clever it was good yeah yeah it was cool good. yeah <laughs> i thought the podcast formerly known as dissect yeah <laughs> which we just have a symbol and it just rem- yeah i mean we do mm. um but it was kind of funny because i was like wait somebody discovered the nonprofit podcast from the normal cast where i <laughs> chris and i were I, that was one of my favorite po- you know podcasts outside of here to uh that i've you know ever recorded i mean it was a really cool conversation um especially the part about where you know i was like yeah these podcasts are never gonna catch on and then a <laughs> year and a half later he's like wait 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 is a podcast that motherfucker <laughs> yeah and chris does a um, great job with it oh my god yeah yeah, he. We have a sometimes infre, in, inconsistent but ongoing conversation about editing and about like maybe sharing or cross posting some things because because um, I told him like I'm doing one with with Aaron Mulkey and then then we have this really good one with Pat Callis and yep. it's you know the Pat podcast is like four hours long i said dude you'd have to break it into four episodes because he likes to not go over an hour generally um and i think it takes an hour to get into it i would agree um but that's how you are with everything it uh, takes a while it it takes it takes a while to get there well the pat episodes would maybe reach out to you guys like i listened to that i was like oh this is amazing like this needs to be recorded yeah like i'm glad someone is talking to these people and and it was something that really got me thinking like man i need to um this front of our front of mine climber guy marco prezel he had this idea for a book and just had to do about going around and visiting you know people that he knew and i i got to thinking after the pat one was like wow we need to start if we want to be good stewards of climbing history um, and we know that millennials won't read books. Generalization <laughs> might be wrong, <laughs> might be accurate. I don't know. But um, and so they're not going to read this history. But how do they? How how will you know people can you know of a certain generation, young climbers coming in now? How will they ever be exposed to you know some of this history? 
And so it might be time for some of the semi-elders to be going around with podcast gear and having conversations with the real elders um, before it's no longer possible. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I wish I'd sat down with Tom Frost and with Jeff Lowe um, mm. before they passed a couple of years ago. Um, because from the last, from that particular trip that I was on with both of them, you know, I'm like the last one alive and realized like, yeah, this is, this happens in climbing people, you know, pass either after having a really good run, you know, from, and they pass from, you know, I could be a, a, a chronic disease, uh, like Jeff had, um, or just be old age. And, you know, some of those guys had pretty good runs and it would be really, would have been really interesting. And I know there's a, a documentary being done by about Tom, um, because he was there in Yosemite, you know, yeah. when it happened. <laughs> and anyway, so I appreciate you reaching out and especially, um, a- around this idea of, um, I don't know. Extreme DIY. Extreme (laughs) DIY. Yeah. And thinking about, because, um, so on the table here, there's some examples of some ice tools that you have made. Uh, one of them, the original, you were in what grade? Ninth grade. So freshman year of high school, freshman year of high school made a couple of ice axes. I made two. Yeah. Actually it might've been sophomore year, but yeah, I made two. This is the, Actually, there's another one. My dad has it, but okay. it's yeah, it's in yeah. A, but it was because um, you had decided you wanted to go climb Mount Whitney. Mm-hmm. Read somewhere that maybe an ice axe could be useful. Pretty much. Didn't want to. Didn't <laughs> you know? Being in ninth or tenth grade, not having a ton of disposable income, like how hard could it be? Those words have gotten me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Oh, it, it, those words have gotten all all of us in a lot of trouble. Yeah, for sure. And but this uh, this particular ice axe, sort of straight up semi, you know, it's like a non traditional blend of uh, wood, carbon fiber, stainless steel. Stainless steel. I was going to say it has to be stainless, so it's going to be a bit softer than. Yep. And the wood shaft itself. Is that just inlay or is or, or is the center darker piece of wood? Does it go all the way through? It goes all the way through. And there's actually and, a layer of carbon on either side of that centered piece of wood that's super thin. Wow. And this and your experience with this came from uh, making sailing? Growing up around it. So, yeah. Like, I remember, like, my first intro to, like, making stuff in general was my dad making stuff um, when I was in, when I was, like, eight or nine. He uh, made a little rowboat in our garage and (laughs) I'd always been around boats and kind of been like helping out with repair and stuff. And like, I don't know. I just love the the process of it. And then. So the rowboat is sort of like a double ended, like a dory for moving water or something. So uh, basically just to carry people to and from a moored boat. Okay. So it's got a, it's got a square back and it's got two sets of oars, but we never used to because it was. Not like the, the bench placement wasn't ideal for two oarsmen, but okay, it worked out and it was beautiful. I mean, it was this strip plank. So basically you have a, a form essentially that's like a skeleton of the boat. Yeah. And then you take 
super thin, like quarter inch or thinner pieces of wood and you just tape them over and glue them to each other. And it like when you look at like a wooden boat, that's what you're looking at is a strip plank design. Okay. Most often. And then fiberglass over that and just kind of a, a blend between like a traditional woodworking. Like when you see a lot of kayaks being made is with that style. It's like a traditional woodworking thing. And then you integrate fiberglass and it just makes a really nice platform. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the wood that you're using, you're, it's thin. It's, it's, it's got more integrity than balsa wood. Yeah, um, so we use balsa wood all the time for boat building stuff. Okay. Um, like incredibly often. Most often with carbon as a coring material. Yeah. So like what you, if you think about com, like as a composite, it's like a big sandwich. Yes. You have two sheets of carbon or fiberglass or whatever your like material is going to be. And then you have space in the middle. And the space you want to be taken up by something so it keeps the sheets apart. And the idea with that is it's like a, it creates stiffness in a way. Okay. So instead of having one thick sheet which is heavy you have two thin sheets which are light and then a lighter material in between and when you separate those two out like if you think about it like a lever and so the stress in the sheet the further away from the load it is the more integrity integrity it has so the thicker the core material the stronger the whole thing will be to to bending okay so hence like we were looking at that speed x bike upstairs and the the down like the, the 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 head tube and the down tube are substantially thicker than any other bike I've ever seen mm-hmm. made of carbon fiber that ideally would provide greater strength than if those, the cross section of those was narrower or thinner. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a, it's like trying to bend a thick pipe versus a skinny pipe. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Perfect. The distance. Yeah. The distance changes the leverage point. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <clears throat> yeah. Interesting. What, um, so you started making boats mm-hmm. or your dad started making boats. Yeah. This sounds eerily familiar because I'm like, are you? Yeah. <laughs> my my dad was like building uh, fiberglass uh, first, fiberglass and then carbon into uh, catamarans, like nineteen foot catamarans. Oh, awesome! Prindles, uh, Nacras, and Hobie cats. I just got into racing those. Yeah, they're fun. They're like just unbelievably fast for no effort. I, that and that that was really so. He was on the same. I will get into because you guys talking about the hydrofoiling was pretty interesting because before the hydrofoiling was a thing, it was it was like technology that was being sessed out, uh, but it wasn't readily available. Right. Still like really in the design phase. Uh, he was trying to reduce drag and shape holes so that they cut through water correctly, trying to get well, on a, on a catamaran, if you, if you, if you race them, you want to fly a hole, yep. right? So you're like, what you're talking about with hydrofolding, um, you want to go through the water. Once you can get fast enough, you get out of the water. Okay. So now I have less drag. Yeah. Um, and now I, my but potential it's the same is higher. thing with the hull design, right? Where the faster you go, the less contact, less surface area is in contact with the water. So kind of, there's, there's, I guess, so there's five stages to what an object in the water does. If four, if you don't have a foil five, if you do have a foil. Okay. So you have what's called displacement mode or displacement sailing, which is where the boat's sitting in the water, it's displacing its weight in water. So when a boat sits in the water, the the weight of the boat is how much water is moved out of the way. And that would be called... That's buoyancy, basically. Buoyancy. Yep. And draft is just the... Is how deep it is. Is how deep it sticks yes. into the water. Okay. Um, so displacement sailing is when you're moving all that water. So to move the boat forward one boat length, yeah, you have to remove its weight of water out of the way and put it back to where it was behind you. Okay. So 
I'm going to skip two and go to three because it'll make two make more sense. Yeah. Three is what you see a motorboat doing most times is planing. Yeah. And so what that is, is this hydrostatic lift on the water surface and the boat is just bouncing off the water like a skipping stone. Yes. So to, to do that, you need to overcome a lot of resistance. And so when a boat, going back to the first one, a boat creates waves when it has to move all that water around. So it creates a bow wave, which comes off the bow, mm-hmm. and then it creates a, a quarter wave, which comes off the back of the transom or midway up usually, and then it creates a stern wave, which looks like a wave behind it. Like if you see like, like wake. Yeah. yeah, like the videos of people like surfing yeah. s- like steamboat wakes, I guess. Yeah. You see there's the triang- triangular one mm-hmm. on the outside, and that's the quarter wave, and then you see the long waves in the back, and that's the stern wave. So as you get going faster and faster from displacement mode, you start getting a bigger and bigger bow wave and a bigger and bigger stern wave and the bow will start coming up. The front of the boat will just lift up and basically you're trying to sail uphill. So when you, this is called forced mode. When you're forcing your way through the water, you're faster than displacement mode sailing. And so every boat has something called hull speed, which is a factor of the length. Um, And the fact the basically the length affects what the hull speed will be. So that's why bigger boats are generally faster. Okay. Um, Because they have longer before they're in forced mode. So at a higher, if you have a longer boat, a higher speed will give you a higher like you won't have as much resistance at the same speed as a shorter boat it's a cube square thing okay um but basically you're trying to get over the hill and when you're over the hill you're planing you're just bouncing off the water so that's the three convent or this is the conventional modes of sailing um there's a thing called fourth mode sailing which is taking a boat that's designed to plane and making it sail in displacement mode effectively. And that's kind of like a skiff thing and it's not really applicable to most watercraft. And then I guess the fifth mode would be hydrofoiling, which is where you skip force mode altogether, (laughs) skip planing and just lift out of the water. Yeah. And so uh, catamarans kind of do this weird thing where, well, they're first displacing uh, their weight by changing kind of their center angle of where the mast is by instead of like a mono hull, which will displace water this way, you have two holes that are yeah. shorter and it just displaces water differently. But also then when you fly a hole, it tilts out. So now I have exactly half of what is dragging through the water. Yeah. And, and to make that happen, you need dagger board or center board and a couple other little actually you need to displace weight off of this side so you hang off of the hole to keep it down right and then cut the cut the wind a certain way but that that's kind of what i grew up doing is racing catamarans and it was like wildly fun but also terrifying and open oh, ocean because yeah. they're not big boats like all together <laughs> including the trailer they weigh like 600 pounds they're like if you if you were to put one <laughs> in a room it would fit in a room this size easily, easily like yeah. about yeah. like that's about the dimensions of it length yeah. and width yeah may a little bit longer because it's 19 foot or something but okay not by much and, and then, then a very so, tall mast just, yeah i was gonna say then so then what would the mast height be on a 19 foot catamaran i, d- I think i want to say it's one third over but maybe you know this better than that. I, I, I was gonna say around 30 feet so that's oh, about a third or yeah, it's a third. Yeah. Yeah. Like that a little right. under 30 feet. Maybe it depends on the, so, and is that, yeah. st- is that standard that third over idea? Not it, necessarily. No. So changes for, for catamarans and stuff like that. And most, yeah. uh, development classes. So you have for sailing, you've got one design classes where the boats are all identical. Mm-hmm. And then you have open classes where the boats are all different and you have like a handicap system for figuring out, which is always a mess and right. nobody likes it. So there's a sunfish and then there's a, category there's, or something. Yes. Like, that's one design. Certain, yeah type yeah, laser of, okay. and then there's a development class which is my personal favorite because you get to develop it as much as you want within a box rule so it's okay. this length 
this width, yeah. this height, this weight, do whatever. This amount of sale area. Like they have a so list of like rules a, and you can do whatever you want inside those rules. So it's like a box gun in shooting competition. Yes. There's yeah. a pistol. It has to, okay, if it, whatever parameters you, if you can get, yeah. make it fit in this box, you can do whatever you want with it. Exactly. Inside. Okay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that's, that's what you get a lot with the catamaran. So there's different classes of that. So like for mm. like the most popular catamaran class, I think on the planet right now is the F-18, which yeah. is a Formula 18, yeah. which is 18 feet long. And I think their mast height, I think is... Uh, 26 27 feet something like that I, yeah that sounds about right i i we those are very expensive designs yes like they're, they're very expensive boats and it, what's strange is that you get something like a hobie miracle 20 or something and that's that's kind of when i exited that field it was like when the miracle 20s came out they were just crushing everybody mm-hmm. uh, because because of the specifics that he's talking about they just nailed the design that was faster for the price than like anything else okay yeah. But you still get people winning world championships that built a boat in their garage. Yeah. Which is the best part about it. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of money to do it. That would be a still... perfect segue into what we're going to eventually talk about, but yeah. let's not yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, that's, a, that's a good point, though. Like, about the. I, I always laughed because uh, we would show up and, uh, man, I, I have like a room full of trophies. But all my dad's boats were ba- – I mean, he buy from Prindle or, or Nacra. Right, or you get something. the whole maiden. Yeah, you get something, and then he would modify the hell out of it. So we restructured the entire hole. And in a Prindle, it's like wood slats, kind of the, the skeleton is there, and then you fiberglass over. Mm-hmm. You can do carbon fiber bits and pieces, but eventually he was moving to – carbon fiber mass uh we ran a like so the prindle you're buying just the wood skeleton part i uh, no, it's it's a whole boat like okay. it, it has the four stays it kind of has everything you could you could put it together and sail it from when you buy it from them yes. but you're making it how you want it basically yeah stiffening okay. up sections yeah and changing like the rigging buying, a, buying okay. a glock and then like modifying <laughs> making it, it not work yeah, <laughs> except doing the opposite of that. Exactly. Identical yeah. <laughs> to that. Well, that's in most of the case. I mean, my dad was highly experimental. I don't know. I'm, how, I'm sure his sailing to boat work ratio was pretty bad. Um, man, <laughs> that's pretty good, right there. That's a good. I would say it was pretty high, because he's uh, well, he's a he's an electrical engineer by trade, and so he's a little bit fanatical. Um, and he does all of the math up front. So he's, uh, he was one of the first ones to run a spinnaker on a Prindle 19. Awesome. So he ran and I was there the first day we flew it. And I'll tell you, that was probably, do you know, spinnaker? I, I know. Okay. I, that's like the, the big sail. The, the big, big sail up front. front. Yeah, yeah. That you plunk to yeah. go, you know, downwind. Yeah. Uh, Hold on. So was it a symmetrical or an asymmetrical spinnaker? It was asymmetrical. Okay. Awesome. So off, that, that must have been like mid nineties. Um, this, or... this would be, yeah. Yeah. Mid nineties. Sounds okay. about right. I want to say, yeah, I would say he got it down by the end by 2000. It was right. for sure. Down, and it was but, like a, God, how old was I? I would be probably be like maybe 11 or 12. So that sounds about right. So eight, 93, 94. Yep. And I think the first one was used on an 18 foot skiff in 91, 92. So the first time we popped the spinnaker, uh, the spinnaker <laughs> boom hit the water because it went boom and it like popped the whole boat almost turtled into into a front uh, capsize. The acceleration you get when the spinnaker fills <laughs> is just like, whoa. It's intense. Wow. I don't think people realize how much power is behind those things, but it was like the first time where I was like, man, what we're doing is really dangerous. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I just like always. I, I I've gone through this whole. My dad would be like, "Hey, I got to try something. Let's go out to the lake. Hey, I got to try something." And then he would like convert 
his land yachts into ice boats and okay all- i've always wanted to get into ice boating oh have you not i've it? never done it I've, i mean i lived in montana for two years and oh shit never never got into it um, never knew anybody who had one but like well, I'll tell you, mine ended on the Utah Lake when we sunk a boat. <laughs> did dad. you discover the limit of the edge of the ice? Uh, he did. Okay. So I, I, he, I took my turn first because this is highly experimental. Again, like all of this stuff is insane because it really comes down to he was cutting metal for the skates mm-hmm. uh, and really trying to get the angle correct so it cuts through the ice. That's interesting. Correctly, actually. like it has like very specific tolerances for the kind of metal that you use, the angle and the way that it adjusts. So like it, it has a it's a very weird i want to say it's like 42 degrees or something needs to be the angle off so that it rides over ice a certain way so he's like calculating all this stuff i took it out and i was like man that's fucking scary and it's loud yeah mark for reference you think a boat on water goes fast a boat on ice will do like 60 knots sometimes like yeah faster than a lot of cars are going on the road the icy road next to you you are booking it in those ways and you're and you're a foot off the ground you're laying down like you're inches off the ground yeah it's just like gripped i'm sure yeah you're you're strapped into do you know what a land yacht looks like uh it's like a basically imagine a chair with like a tripod that goes out so you have a front steer okay and then you have two side it's like the front of a canoe yeah 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 Yeah. and two wheels on either side and then you're kind of lay down so you can get a a like aerodynamic yeah <laughs> and then you basically have to control you have like you know your 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 steering system is pedals? usually your pedals and then you you can also steer kind of with the sail um <laughs> so janky what shit. you just described uh is the exact reason why it's not more popular um <laughs> that, yeah there's no money in it right so it's all all these like aficionados kind of go they're just interested in aerodynamics and in in engineering and so where do you use it dry lake bed is it like salt yeah for flat land sailing plane? yeah land sailing uh the 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 salt flats have been terrible for a while because they're too wet because it's too wet yeah. but you know that interchange um just past gene in Nevada, yeah, in Prim, yep. So that interchange, yeah, uh, that's where they have the national championships. Is just off of there, that little dry lake bed. And I've done interesting. I did a hundred miles an hour in a land yacht down there. What? And I never did it again because it was one of the most terrifying things I've yeah. ever done. I've ever done. So they let they set land speed records down there. It's like it's an insane group of really geeky people, kind of nerding out and doing a bunch of weird stuff. But my, the ice boat ended because my dad took it. I just saw him walk. I was like waiting in the car. It's winter, and I just see him walking across the ice coming back, and I was like. Man, that's probably not good. And he's like, I got to grab the GPS. I got to mark where the boat went off. And I was like, oh my God, you're never going to get that thing. He never did because the soot in Utah Lake is oh, terrible. Yeah. But uh, that was, I think that was the end of ice sailing. Oh, the silt. Yeah. The yeah, 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 yeah. 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 It, it's like. Yeah, it's milky. <laughs> it, 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 it's, Opaque water. So apparently the Utah Lake is very deep. Interesting. Okay. But you get to that first layer fairly quickly. And that's why they have waves is because the thickness of the silt, I think, is like it changes the wave dynamics. So you can get crashing waves on Utah Lake because the, but I think it's like 60 foot of silt or something from, huh. what, from what I understand. I could be totally wrong, but that that ended up being the truth because my dad tried to retrieve that boat in the summer. It was not possible. Oh, yeah. The mass is just under the bottom. Totally. Yeah. Completely 
fucking gone. Anyway, that wow. the, this this weird culture of sailing is like I think it's fascinating because I think it's what got me into building stuff mm-hmm. as well. Like I got really interested in shaping wood for like skateboard ramps and like I started working with metal and making swords and knives when I was like oh really God. young. Okay, we have like a very similar story because <laughs> I uh, got into knife making like five or six years ago and actually was like res- went through a period where I was restoring old tools and then um, got a job with Montana Knife Company. Oh, did you? Josh Smith. Yeah. No, did if you guys ever get the chance to meet him and have yeah, him on the podcast, you I, absolutely Yeah, do. I know Josh actually. Yeah, he's he, awesome. Yeah, he's rad. He's a really cool guy. Uh, probably the best knife maker in America. One of, absolutely. Yeah. There's yeah. definitely a couple people who are been doing it a little longer and mm-hmm. he would he would definitely tell you it's probably steve schwarzer but mm. um he's his stuff is amazing and working in that environment like i learned so much yeah he's a perfectionist absolutely yeah. my first day at that job i show up at 6 p.m because he's like oh i just want to meet you and he's there with his business partner brandon mm. or brandon and He's the guy that did Flagner Fail stuff, right? I don't really know. I've, I've, I haven't talked to him too much. Um, but basically, he's with this business partner. We're sitting there, and he's like, he's been sitting at this workbench for two hours with Brandon, trying to figure out how to wrap the handle in the speed goat the way he wanted it. And so he like asked me if I had any ideas, and like we tried out a couple different things, and we ended up we ended up having a design that we liked, and or we weren't super happy about, but we kind of liked it. It was like a little bit thicker. It had like knots mm. in it. And, uh, eventually it got refined to like the wrapped one that you see these days. Mm. But then he's there for like talking with him. And then it's like nine o'clock at night. And he's like, you want to do some bead blasting? And I, I go, okay. And like, we walk into the, the shop room and there's this little red cabinet in there. This sounds like what happens when we visit Steve Morrison at Mars. A hundred percent. Exactly the same thing. Like, hey, today we're going to do the... Yes. I mean, I'm laughing because this is your first day, right? Yeah. No. And so we go in <laughs> and there's this cabinet with this window in it and you can't really see through the window. Yeah, because the plexi on the front yeah. of it hasn't been changed and, uh, lately. <laughs> it's this Harbor Freight cabinet. And he's like, yeah, you just got to blast these blades. You don't have to blast the spines because we're wrapping them, but just blast them with this media. I go, okay. And I like like it's dark and there's like light in the cabin the light's not good i'm like trying to see and he's like oh yeah big ass gloves he's like oh yeah you just gotta listen for it but sometimes it stops working and then you have to take the gun in there and bang it against the side as hard as you can for a couple (laughs) minutes and so it happened he didn't tell me that it was it stopped working halfway through the first knife and like every half knife you have to bang it for a couple minutes so to do probably 30 knives took me about two hours nice and then we opened up the cabinet he's like you need to do these again I was like, all right, I'm going to come in tomorrow and do them. Yeah, because it's 11 and I got to go. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> that, how long How wow. long were you up there? I was, let's see. So I worked there kind of on and off for about a year and a half. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was in college at the time. Yeah. Um, Like at University of Montana and I'd drive the 30 minutes. And he he was so generous. Like every time we like the company was doing well, he's like, hey, I'm giving you a raise. You know, like. Oh, like nice. I went from making $12 an hour to like 20 an hour by the time I was done. Dude, and he's like, a he'd phenomenal me, human being. He'd pay me for driving time. Yeah. Like, oh, that's right. Like for gas money to get there. Like, and just, he's like, yeah, he's one Man. of the greatest people I've ever met. He has one of the funniest stories I've ever fucking heard in my life. Like pro- he, a, a friend, and it's through a friend of his, I'll, I'll cause people have to hear the story. If you like, I hope I don't jack his story from him because he loves telling it because I heard it twice from him. He um, <laughs> he has a friend who owns um, uh, porta potties, 
right? Oh, this and, is a great story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, uh, got this guy. It's like, he's done very well for himself, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Like anybody that's in that business would know. But he shows up to this uptight party or something. And he's in, uh, people are like, oh, what are you in? And he's like, uh, you know, rentals, property management, development, bonds. <laughs> property. He's like, what are you into? He's like, oh, I got rentals. And he's like, how many rentals you guys? Like, ah, a couple thousand. He's like, oh shit. People are like, you're really in the rental business. Like, how do you do it? You know, he's worth millions. He's really successful. And he's like, well, they're small rentals. They're like really small rentals. Really, yeah. Like yeah. blue colors. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually About he's just like seven feet tall. Yeah, he's like, I, I I fucking clean up people's shit. I'm not gonna like he can't yeah, get along can't. with you people. Anyway, so he starts telling like people are like, oh, well, what's that business like? He's like, well, we do other things. They clean out septic tanks, stuff like that. And so he's like in front of all these like millionaires telling stories about his business, and like, oh, what? Like, I bet that like that's actually probably a fascinating business. He's like, oh yeah, you get the weirdest stuff sometimes. He's like, I got a call last week or something, and um, I, this guy called me. He's like, septic tanks all backed up. So I go down there, I clean it, I open it up, I go, man. <laughs> you got to stop flushing jimmies down the toilet. Like they do, you cannot, you know, you can't do it. And that guy goes, um, I got snipped a couple years ago. And so they're not my condoms that are in the septic tank. And he goes, Oh, it's probably your kids is a like, kids moved out a while ago. And he's like, Look, man, you're going to have a hard discussion with your wife tonight about whose condoms these are. This one's on me. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the story he's telling to a bunch of millionaires up in Montana. It's like fucking so good. I probably butchered it, but I just like that story stuck with me. Mostly because Josh is such a good storyteller. It's probably amazing to work for for quite a while. Yeah. um, Has he told you about his bowling ball cannon? No. Okay, so he has a cannon that shoots bowling balls <laughs> at the mountain lie. behind his house, and they'll go they'll go over a mile. I mean, they they Are go. You serious? Yeah, he puts a he uses a pound of black powder in this cannon. It, it looks like a little howitzer. It's like painted green. It's on like a little trailer thing. It's on wheels, but the diameter of it's like bowling ball sized. And so he's he shoots it at the mountain behind like behind his house, and like you don't know where they land. <laughs> like they go so far. Like it's a national forest back there. And Brandon was like, what if you hit somebody? And Josh is like, if I hit, if someone's walking back there and they get hit by a bowling ball out of the sky, That's it's just God. their time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no one will ever know. Exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine like, the just medical examiner? F- yeah, exactly. <laughs> this body. body it's a really weird dent in it. <laughs> like, I don't know what. I think at that point, after the the... I don't know the drama. You'd be like, "Is that a strike?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just won the tournament right yeah. there, forever. Yeah, he's a great guy. That must have been, and I imagine he taught you all sorts of stuff. Oh yeah, woodworking, metalworking, tool using. Is that most of metalworking stuff? Yeah. Okay. And how old are you at this point? I'm 20. Okay. <laughs> so am I your youngest podcast guest? Are you 20 right now? Yes. Oh. You might be. You may be, yeah. But the, the remarkable thing is we've already covered an enormous um, like journey in... in <laughs> Some people uh, start young. Yeah. Yeah. I've, wow. I've just like met some amazing people, you know, and just like 
you know, I'll talk to someone and they'll be like, hey, you know, come out to my shop or, yeah. hey, come sail this boat with me or whatever. And I, I just say yes to things enough. Perfect. That I, I get to go do all these amazing yeah, what things. Do you, what do you think really is like, because uh, there's a lot of people, especially your age or maybe even a little bit older, that are like, oh, there's no opportunity in the world. And it's like, but man, I, I like, I still find that there's plenty. Like, and if I don't know, do you know what quality that is in yourself that gets you like, are do you like obviously get a hold of people and say hi and whatever and make things happen? But it, it, what do you think it is about you that gets people to like, invite you in i don't know i think people just trust me for no reason this includes (laughs) this includes climbing partners like just you know people think i know what i'm doing most of the time and i probably don't or i i don't know somehow i make it seem like i know what i'm doing sure but i just kind of wing it all the time but it's not like you don't know what you're doing right obviously you've like made things and done certain things so it's like there there's obviously like a fake it till you you know can fake it some more uh, mentality, but you've obviously you've been doing things from a very young age, and like you ask you a technical boat, you know more about boats than I do, and I've been around in my whole life. Um, it's just like a weird. I don't know. It's interesting. I think if you're curious, the world is kind of open. Oh, absolutely. I mean, regardless of the generation or or, right. the, or the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're looking at me right now. Just dropped out of college. Not totally sure what I'm going to be doing. Like even a month from now, like. <laughs> I'm, I know I'll be working like a couple like coaching jobs, but mm-hmm. like, man, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. Well, and this is coaching in the, in the sailing yes. world. Yeah. I was going to say, tell us or, like, what are you coaching? Ooh. So it's interesting. I, uh, so basically I've been coaching sailing since I was 15. Okay. Um, like I actually never applied for a job in my life. I've just like called people and said, Hey, you need someone to work for you. And they said, yes. Um, and, uh, like usually it's like, Oh, I'll just sweep your floor or whatever. But like with the coach, like I was on the high school sailing team at the yacht club and I knew they needed coaches and, and this is down, this is in Coronado, California, in Coronado. Okay. Yeah. Which is where I went to some of high school. I moved around a ton as a kid. Yeah. Um, and basically it's like, yeah, you need to get the certification and then you can work here. So I got the certification and I worked there. It's pretty simple. I was coaching kids like, like up to about 13, mm-hmm. uh, not too old, you know, just like teaching them how to sail and then getting the kids who are good at sailing into beginning racing. And when you're at it in Coronado, you're teaching sailing on the West side of the Island. No, I'm on the uh, East side in the Bay. Or excuse me on the East side. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're in the Bay, not, not right. out in the so more it's open flat water. Yeah. Usually not enough wind in yeah. my opinion, but that sure. big bridge um, thing. That yeah. Goes so over we're, there. yeah. there's like, if you go across the bridge and you look left, there's like this little inlet that's yeah. called Glorietta Bay. And that's yeah. where we did all our stuff. And that's, and that's where the, um, where all the, the, the sailboats are, yes. and other boats are parked. Essentially there's like, uh, damn, what is that? Yeah. That's Coronado Yacht Club. Okay. Perfect. So the, okay. the biggest, the hardest thing about coaching was getting kids not to run into those. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that that's easily the hardest part is yeah. stopping kids from running into stuff. Fair enough. I don't like. I'm like, why you're looking like, like I don't know. I'm don't just like, look where you don't want to go, man. Or it's, it's even the same in everything. Most often, I'm just like, hey, you want to go over there? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, go that way. Like, just point your boat that way, and you'll go there. And they're like, yeah. Oh, and they still won't do it. Ugh. It's the law of gravitational attraction. Well, there's, man, it, uh, to give you an, uh, my, my dad was pretty strict with my, like, 
upbringing. So in order to learn, like I, I wanted to sail, I thought that was fun, but in order to like solidify my sailing knowledge, I needed to learn about celestial navigation and all sorts of shit that's unrelated. <laughs> so for, for Utah Lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I can see where the land's at, Dad. I, until we got into the ocean, then I kind of understood why. But uh, it is interesting how fucking complex it is. Like reading oh, yeah. tales on a sail, understanding. I mean, you would understand this from, from climbing, but understanding weather patterns and like freaky shit that just happens. And it's it's all about the like with climbing and sailing the same way it's the subtleties. Like mm. it's like you can feel that one degree shift yeah. of temperature on that snow slope when you you're like, okay, I don't like it here. Yeah. Like you just get the like the creepy crawly thing. You're like, all right, I'm moving somewhere else, you know? You get yeah. that sailing too. Okay. Yeah. It's definitely like a sixth sense kind of deal. Uh, you start to read the water differently, mm-hmm. right? Like you can see the ripples, you can see the sails, how they're responding and flapping. And you just like have a weird, like, oh, stuff's about to change. Let's like calm things down and cut and trim the sail just because you'll, I don't know. If it's rabid conditions, which is kind of what you look for, like you want really wild wind when you're trying to go fast. You need it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's yeah. your engine. And that's also the scariest part because it's really erratic, but it's yeah. kind of interesting craziness man so that subtlety applies to like everything i do you know okay. like it's i think it's because i grew up like just absorbing like i i don't know i i don't know how to describe this very well um but basically when i grew up seeing how the wind moved which is something you can't see hmm. yes you like learn to feel that you learn to see that everywhere it's and i like look for stuff like when I'm taking a photo, like I look at like a line and I'm like, I love how crisp this, this edge is, this boundary or when it's with a, like making an ice axe, it's, I need the curve to be right. I need the pick angle to be right. And it's not like a perfectionism thing. It's like, it's a, it's an aesthetic thing, but it, it's also functional in a way that I can't describe. Wow. There's a, um, I mean, if we get on the ice tool subject, yeah. Let, let's. I mean, let's why not? Into, yeah, I mean, I'd like it, to yeah. go back to sailing because I want to under, understand a little bit about the coaching and how that um, works. But but with this, it's you know, it's it's interesting. Like the very first example of the ice axe. I mean, you obviously looked at something, and I'd I'd say okay, the model for this was probably, and. Uh, I think one of the first traditional ice axe designs that had a slight curve to it was made by Gravel at a time that maybe I was working mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Um, it, 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 and I, and it, and uh, I mean, it would have been in the AirTech line, but it just had a gentle curve to it. Um, the 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 carbon fiber tool with that doesn't have a pick in it. A little bit more aggressive curve, obviously mm-hmm. used for a little bit steeper terrain, mm-hmm. maybe. But like, so you take like these these existing, um, and, I, and I'll just equate it to because part of the conversation that we had by email was like, uh, you know, is it still gear, especially for the outdoors and the mountains these days? It's so good. Is there any place uh, requirement for something that is that is homemade that it, like that that do, and does that does the homemade 
piece of gear solved the problem. And and when probably I probably not in a way that's profitable. Oh no, for sure not. <laughs> for sh- but <laughs> that, but but that was never where the innovation. You know, it's just like the yeah. the sailboat stuff. Yeah. It's like, you, you know, oh yeah, we have this thing that work that that goes really really well uh, that we made in the yard, but um, you know, it's not it's not commercial. Uh, there, 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 there's no way to monetize it. There's no way oh, to absolutely. to get and, and it. When I first started climbing, I mean, there was the the uh, you know everything was heavy, and we weren't into. And the only thing that we had the skill to manipulate, and I didn't. My climbing partner Andrew Knock at the time had the skill to manipulate because he knew how to sew. Um, the sleeping systems were too heavy. And so we made what I believe was the first insulated bivy sack with, you know, an uninsulated floor that, you know, you had a a cut to shape foam pad that, you know, uh, with tabs of Velcro would uh, fit inside this. So you didn't have to carry the weight of the insulation. Mm. You, You put a drawstring system into it because then you could suck the insulation down around you much like, um, you know, Montbell later popularized with the, the elastic insula- insulation mm-hmm. in their sleeping bags with the uh, in- insulation that, that, that um, had a, a, a elastic uh, individual elastic pieces going through it that would you know suck right. it down. This so you could like move the you could move around in the bag, but then it would collapse down onto you and you would have less dead air space to heat up. And so we started thinking about those things that we could make at the time that would reduce ultimately the weight and bulk in the, in the pack. Uh, and, but actually making ice tools is on, or, you know, is on a whole nother level. Uh, which again, I had, I mean, I saw on a trip to the Soviet union in 1990 was all the homemade gear they had. It, somebody had access to some foot fangs, some real low foot fangs at one point. I'm still climbing on those. And, and perfect. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 then made a you know titanium variant of it, um, because you know hey you work in a metal shop metal sh- you know submarine factory or whatever you know some of these guys over you know had like two engineering degrees and stuff and they would just make shit you know titanium pressure cookers mm. for you know high altitude so you'd save a lot of have fuel you ever used like- those titanium ice screws like do they still sell them on eBay I've never seen one. The, like the Russian oh, titanium screws. Yeah. I mean, for me, they're levers. They were always levers because, you know, if the, um, because is it trustworthy? It sounds expensive. <laughs> Not for them. No, it's because titanium it's is cheap there. Right. Well, they, like the Soviets had a huge stockpile. Uh, yes. And oh, okay. so they're like leeching off the government. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah. So but, things. So raw materials would disappear from. But like one ice cream is not that much titanium when you have millions uh, of tons. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. I'm and, just comparing it to the titanium that's in my elbow and going. That was like I think ten grand. Or I don't know I mean, how much the stuff in my back is, but. Right. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. The markup on that is different than what you know. But outdoor typical outdoor industry market that'd be a forty percent markup. But I'm guessing you're in medical, so it's four hundred thousand yeah. or something. <laughs> but um, and those. And the the problem with a lot of the, the the Russian screws was the hanger or hanger attachment. Right. And you'd be very easy to sort of uh, strip or bend the actual hanger. Um, it seemed like, 
they weren't and and our access to them would always be on a Himalayan trip. You'd go because you'd find them in because mm-hmm. you know yeah. Russians or, or East Block climbers yeah. would take you know a, a raft of them. They wouldn't have high altitude insulation available in the at home in the country for or lightweight or whatever. So you take the the sort raw material or the, or the products that you have and then trade or you know sell it in the you know in some market shop playing whatever in in Kathmandu and get you know the the boots that you needed yeah, are or you, get the are you saying that communism didn't really work out <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that um uh, th- th- that depending on what you're holding uh when you walk into the uh the, the free market yeah you may have you know more opportunities or less opportunities depending on the viability of of uh of what you're what you're selling and so we would find them there and that you, you know um, yeah, getting down off a route or something, mm-hmm. you know, before v, v, v threads were a thing or before electrical conduit, you know, hammered in <laughs> for 17 cents a foot um, was a thing. Yeah, you'd hit the electrical conduit hard enough, it mushrooms the head, you'd girth hitch a sling. No shit. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've climbed yeah. a couple of routes and seen that stuck in some cracks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like hammered into cracks sometimes still, you know, um, but there there was a whole, there was a thing in the eighties where you, at springtime in the Canadian Rockies, there were, you know, the environmentally sensitive people would go and clean up all the conduit at the, that had melted okay. out of the roots. Um, <laughs> you make wind chimes and shit out of it, I guess. Nice. Anyway, sell it at the um, farmer's market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but making like what, the set of ice tools that you have made for me is, uh, to me, this is remarkably sophisticated. Um, and I, you know, I look back the, the, the first carbon fiber ice tool that I had and the very, the early ones that were made, the very first one that I had was made by Gravel. It was given to me in 1985, um, climbing the North face of the Iger with it, eventually gave it to Jack tackle, uh, a year later, he climbed with it a bunch, broke it, had it repaired, so it went from 50 centimeters to like 46. <laughs> after, uh, um, and, and so I'm thinking, so it's a straight shafted tool. The upper part where the where the head meets the shaft, it's all sort of reinforced, and then the shaft become became thinner. Um, uh, Simone at the same at the same time came out with a carbon fiber. They called it carbon fiber, um, but it wasn't 100 percent because you know they were trying to. You know, it, it's marketing. It's well, yeah. <laughs> and there was, a, and there was a good degree, and it was so. The, it was a Barracuda that I had and bought from them. They had originally been like almost, you know, single-use tools that they'd made for Christophe Profi when he was trying to do the trilogy thing. Um, ended up with one of those. There was a lot more fiberglass in it than there was carbon fiber, uh, and that dented and broke. Um, that shaft broke right away. Uh, the following winter in the Canadian Rockies. Um, and so the technology, you know, wasn't in the beginning. Obviously, if you cut corners, you, you cut corners. Um, and so that particular, the Barracuda uh, broke because it wasn't, you know, real carbon fiber. That tool that I had and that I gave to Tackle must have, uh, I don't know how many routes um, that it had done jack probably gave me a list when i was collecting them. i think john free might be the custodian of that tool oh, right sure. now um because i had this collection of tools um that eventually i had to find someone to take care of them because i was no longer willing hmm. um and 
And then they're then I had a couple of odd shapes looking a lot like this one that you just uh, made for a while. That you know again, uh, true carbon fiber, so they were incredibly durable. Um, but you could, but so expensive mm-hmm. at the time that it wasn't viable. How how much does something like that run back then? I mean, you're probably looking at 400 US uh, okay. uh, per tool. That's probably what you're paying now for carbon tools that aren't made. Like the Gravel just came out with the Dark Machine. Yeah. Which is, I haven't climbed on it yet. I'd love to. Yeah. But it's remarkably affordable for what it is. Yeah. Mulkey was climbing on those before he switched right. Allegiance. Um, and he said, this is the, you need to try these. These This is the best ice tool you, you will ever have used if you climb on it, which I never did because it's really hard for me to. So, wrap my hand around a tool made by that particular brand. But, understandable. Well, and Black Diamond uh, makes a carbon tool, but I hate it. It's okay. awful. It's a. Uh, it's like, I mean, it, it weighs the same as a, an aluminum tool. Yeah, but it's just got some carbon on it, and right. I, I, it, yeah, the weight's a little bit like the balance point's a little closer to the head, but it's right. I, I mean, there were it's, it's there were tank. carbon fiber Black Profits, or not not the uh, not the Black Profit, uh, the Cobra was being made in carbon fiber but but you're right it wasn't um it demonstrably lighter overall it did but it did shift the balance point because it like a the standard sort of uh the original cobra i just want to say it's like a alloy wrapped with rubber something i can't remember exactly um that versus the carbon fiber one was they behaved very differently yeah and it feels and as we talked about with this um you know that a carbon fiber tool is just going to be warmer yeah always than than you know the the, whatever the alloy equivalent would be um maybe regardless of what you wrap it with but and so maybe the technology so at the time the technology wasn't common enough where you could get it at a a a price that was well and carbon fiber just itself the material was new and really expensive i mean yeah the first carbon fiber boats were like late 80s yeah like okay i mean they didn't use them in the america's cup until probably 1992 yeah uh like the first like this cup in san diego like that was the first time they had carbon carbon boats yeah and now everything is now everything is and you know like like even from when i was a kid you know buying carbon like it was probably like forty dollars a yard and now it sounded like twenty dollars a yard yeah as far as just for the plain cloth just for the cloth itself okay and that's in 10 years you know Cutting Which is weird that I was buying carbon when I was ten, but it's kind of funny <laughs> because they were yeah. I mean, original bike frames that were carbon oh, yeah. were incredibly expensive, and yeah. now it's just like oh, now it's the cheapest way to manufacture them. Yes, yeah. I I would love to be able to manufacture these tools in the same way they make the bike frames with the aluminum molding. It's just like the investment of the tooling itself to make that is yeah. incredible. Yeah, it's like the the way you mold it becomes the most expensive part. Yeah, the on, tools. On yeah, are, yeah, the tools itself. Like the material's not that expensive anymore. Yeah. And amortizing the cost of that would... It, it, I mean, in, in the bike industry, it's possible because so many people, you know, like human, yeah. a lot of human beings ride bikes. Um, in the climbing world, there's just... there's there's probably not enough demand to eventually amortize yeah that or or i mean i'm not sure how i mean obviously gravel's not doing it by hand no gravel's doing it with the inflated bladder system essentially so okay. like they have a they have two aluminum plates that are yeah. like the negative of the the tool yeah and they lay like they do do it by hand they have someone who like they use pre-preg carbon so it's got okay which is pre-impregnated so it's got resin in it already mm-hmm. and that's the lightest 
resin to carbon balance, which I use it thicker. Like I use more resin because I think it feels better in your hand. Okay. Um, I can I can squeegee more out if I need to and get it close to prepreg, but not quite. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, they use the prepreg and they have they have a die cut that cuts all the pieces out. Yeah. And they have someone who lays them in in the specific order that the engineers figured out. And then they put this like it looks like a long water balloon. Yeah. Inside, close the mold, and then inflate the water balloon, and it pressurizes it so everything goes to the outside of the mold. And then they cook it, cooks the resin, cook it in the mold, in the mold, and then take it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the and and would all, all of the metal pieces is that sort of like a one shot? Would all the metal pieces be? Um, uh, built into that so no layout, so that's the difference or? between my and my tools and the ones you buy is okay. theirs are basically when they come out of the mold it's an open-ended tube and they slot something in there and put two rivets in it, okay yeah like they're like more like roll pins but they're yeah it's not it's not really a roll pin because it doesn't have the slot in it it's a hollow pin that the ends get mushroomed out okay so with this bladder that was in there, it's I don't know no, what they do with it. It either stays it, in there or they remove it somehow. But it's not structural in any way. Once no. it's, um, and so those roll, let's just say those roll pins are. They're through in, the carbon the, and the it, middle and and, and the metal it. and that's it. Yep. Actually, I think they uh, they have it like a, it's like a nylon sleeve between the metal and the carbon. So something interesting that a lot of people don't think about is galvanic corrosion. Yes. Which, coming from the sailing world, you have to think about. Mm. And so anywhere that there's aluminum touching carbon, uh-huh. you get a battery. Yeah. So I mean, everywhere there's aluminum touching carbon in these tools, there's a layer of fiberglass between. Okay. Uh, the galvanic corrosion also happens with, you know, old school bolts, maybe, out oh, yeah. in the wild where there might be an aluminum hanger on a steel bolt. I've clipped too many of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, I think when that came to people's attention... You know, because you, you know you you make the route, you climb, you know you you, you drill, you place the bolts, you mm. you do the route. You don't really ever go back. Yeah, you don't think that that those bolts might be there for fifteen, twenty, twenty five years, and uh, the, the the nature of the material is changing just due to environmental exposure yeah. and this uh, interaction of different materials. Well, so in Hawaii, for all the climbing there, which that that climbing in Hawaii is very interesting. It's like I imagine pseudo illegal. Okay, um, it's very interesting. There's like, like, there's an organization that's taken liability from the state for certain climbing areas, and there's like some bouldering, but it's mostly sport climbing, and the rock quality is not amazing. So try, try to testing. It's a volcanic rock. Yeah, so like yeah. we get like columnar basalt, <laughs> like vantage style. Sure, but not quite nice. as good nice. of columns. They're okay. like kind of broken up, and so you get some cool, fun overhangs, and then you get into like a column there's a lot of stemming roots there okay but every bolt on the island is titanium gluing because the stainless ones rust through in a couple years oh because salt content yeah it's just yeah. salt air blasting it all the time i mean there's a my one of my favorite crags i ever climbed at is like there's a light so at makapu'u point there's a lighthouse and then there's a lookout and you go off left and there's like a hidden climbers trail and you get up to okay. it and it's like it's like a dinky little 30 foot crag but then you walk five feet and you're 200 feet over the ocean looking straight down to the ocean. Wow. So it's like you're climbing and when you're on the top, it, you can look down and it looks like you're, you know, a couple hundred feet up, but you're, you're only like 20 feet off the ground uh, from a different vantage. Yeah. yeah. Craziness. Whoa. But I mean, that area gets so much sea spray because the way the point is, it waves break on the point all the time. Mm-hmm. 
one of the best body surfing areas on the island called Sandy's is right there. Okay. Um, cause it, it wraps around the point and you get this awesome, like left to right break. And, uh, yeah, the points are just getting battered by waves all the time. And so there's salt in the air. And like when it's really big, you're getting like droplets that come up like a couple hundred feet. Okay. You know, like there's salt water hitting stuff, you know? And so, and also like you'll have salt deposits on hold sometimes like, Oh, that's not shock. That's (laughs) it's salt. Just as grippy. No. Yeah. Shock is hydrophilic. Yeah. And, or not shock. Phobic. Well, actually shock is hydrophilic. It absorbs water off your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Salt is really hydrophilic. And so it holds water. It holds water. That's why the salt flats are. So yeah. Interestingly on this blue tool, the salt grip your hands would be covered in salt water at the end of a climbing day. Um, but they never freeze because it was salt water. Yeah. It's interesting. But I have a pair of gloves that are like starched white. So this, so the grip material on the, on the new tools is... It's like silica sand. Silica sand. You had mentioned that you tried sugar. Yeah, so first. that's on the tool without the pick on it. Okay. And you can see some remnants of it. It, just, it wasn't that grippy. Yeah. It was okay. And it... It, it wore off fast. And this with the salt impregnated into the resin, I mean, that is, that just tears the, like, it feels like it would just tear the shit out of your hands. It's surprisingly not terrible. I have some gloves that are like a little beat up from a season. It's like an exfoliant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, you get calluses. Um, But honestly, it's not that big a deal because you're not feeling your hands anyway because they're cold. And actually, that's not true. I haven't, I've gotten the screw and bar face like twice. Okay. Never call me on my tools, which is, that's my, uh, my little win. There you go. Um, yeah. but honestly, it's, it's not terrible. You just, with oh. gloves on, it's not a big deal. Okay. It's, re- it's remarkable how grippy it is. And the fact that, and, and I don't know how much use that that particular tool has seen. Um, but that, that it is still, the the salt is still present in the resin. Yeah. It's fully encased in a lot of places. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But that's seen this tool. Let's see. I made that. Ooh, I think I made it. It saw one very, very hard season. Okay. Like with, like climbing from November until, actually no, I made that in January of last year. So, climbing from January till, probably end of May. Okay. Yeah. Which I'm more like going on a walk in the end of May, but yeah. (laughs) Craziness. It's it's really wild. The, The. the balance in that tool is right. I mean, it's like everything that, you know, had we had been aiming for of like no weight in the shaft and whatever weight there needed to be. Like if there's if, if the shaft is utterly light and like um, then it doesn't take much weight in the head. And no, it, I mean, in, in order for it, the you know, the 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 difference between the axis point and the uh, the, the, the the head traveling around that. Um, there there's a ratio there that makes the tool swing well and if it's a heavy tool then the then you know heavy in the shaft then you need a lot more weight in the head overall weight is yeah is is big and you're putting it up above your head all day yeah so well the swing on these is totally different than you get with a heavier tool yeah it's a it's more of a wrist flick yes i mean you can just tap it in and it'll stick it's Mm. i i don't know i i'm not a big mixed climbing guy Mm mm-hmm but you can be as delicate with these as you can with anything else, I feel like. Okay. And the like, it's nice when you're trying to figure out a place and holding it above your head, you know? 
yeah. your shoulders not getting as worked. Yes. <laughs> so, so with all of this um, engineering, creating stuff, um, obviously using it for a per- like, uh, where do you think you're going with it? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I love to be able to make these commercially Yeah. and have facility where I could really do like live out the dream of designing and testing and building. Mm-hmm. But realistically, it's probably going to be for me and friends or yeah. a couple people who really want them and like find me and want uh, some. For, for using these, what kind of like physical ambitions do you have? Oh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Cause you're leaving a pretty decent, I know I'm climbing really, I'm really upset about it zone. We'll say, yes. and are, and headed back to Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'll be in Hawaii coaching. Um, Ugh. I'm going to be running a little bit just to try to keep some fitness from that. But, um, I don't know. I'd love to like one of my dream routes is to repeat the Slovak. Oh my. Um, <laughs> like I, I'd like to be really good. Okay. um, I don't know. As good as I can be. I I don't know. So this is something I've been trying to parse out in my mind the last couple of years is I have a lot of motivation to do a lot of things that you don't really get that motivated to do. Like making your own stuff or going getting really cold and scared. I don't know why I'm so motivated to do it. And that's what I've been trying to figure out. And I also have this motivation to like be really good at stuff. I don't know why. I, it's probably some, some psychologist will tell me someday, but I, I just want to be really good. And that's what it was to sailing until I got kind of burned out with competing in the sailing world. And now I, I like coaching better, but with like, I went from, so I've been, I've been climbing for five ish years. Okay. Um, not coming up on six. I've been really climbing. So when I went to college, they had a gym there and I, that was crazy. I had, never climbed into gym I like an really indoor climb. rock gym yeah. yeah i climbed outdoors and i was like i couldn't do a v3 in the gym and two years later i'm climbing like v8 v9 okay so and like doing like thir- 513 yeah which i which I, I feel like i'm progressing really slowly but i look at other people and i'm like oh two years is is not That's, bad for that progression yeah <laughs> and i'm like well i wonder if i can keep that going you know I mean, there's a point of, you know, sort of diminishing return. Like it, it'll, it'll definitely slow down. Oh, absolutely. But the, let's just say that the laboratory atmosphere of the indoor gym where you, it, a, a lot of resources, especially with, you know, modern training boards, mm-hmm. um, which I've never climbed that on. kind of thing. There's, uh, nor have I, I've only mm. seen, I mean, we went and, with Sam. uh, watched Sam and, um, uh, Elias yeah. on a and couple, couple of different Boone boards. Speed and, is making one now. Yeah, the Grasshopper. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I traded some texts with Boone the other day, and he, I asked him what he's doing. He goes, man, this is this has gotten way more involved than we thought it ever would. Like, it, it apparently it's a thing. But just that, sorry, you have the, 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 the physical sort of tools um, in, in those, you know, enclosed spaces, but then you just also have a really high concentration of, energy and I, you know, creative energy and ideas and, and, and effort happening and, and, a, and a, and a wonderful exchange that can happen there that never used to, um, occur in when I'll just say, use a buzzword of it was more decentralized. Like people were all over the, you know, the mm-hmm. continent and not sharing ideas in the way that was that, uh, are, are unable to, with the exception of like big destination climbing areas like Yosemite, like the, the you know, the right. Yosemite changed 
the, the world of rock climbing forever. Uh, the, the limestone crags in France changed the world of rock climbing forever. And now indoor rock gyms are, you know, basically doing the same thing. Yeah. And as, and, and the, the, the advantage of these localized, you know, developing crags when sport climbing was, um, uh, the, the early days of it, let's say, um, there was still a connection to the outdoors right and now it's its own thing it, it's, it's, it's 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 its own thing somebody was uh, that i was talking to and maybe um it was mentioned on a podcast but something like only 15 percent of the clients at the indoor rock gym that he attends or owned and i can't remember who it have was been so on I don't real remember. rock or something pardon have been on real uh, yeah rock. go out yeah 15 percent of them actually go outside that. yeah and it's like wow so it really did i mean that's cool yeah. and, and different but um but I think so. I think you know a progression of you think it's taking a long time, but it you know it took other people you know a decade to make mm -hmm. yeah. that same when yeah, when the when the the resource availability and the concentration of energy was different. Well, so I spent the last year working as a root setter. Nice. So making all the climbs at the gym. Yeah. And like, there's something about that that's I I, I would love to keep. So I I'm trying to see if I can get a job doing that in Hawaii because okay. that's that's like it's. I love the movement of mm -hmm. climbing. I love thinking about the motion, the body mechanics and understanding like, like the, the awareness of where you are. Yeah. Like I, there's climbing is amazing for that. And like just thinking about movement. And so when you're, and the fact that there's like a bit of risk yes. enforces a level of presence and cognition that, you know, um, it would not otherwise be, uh, available. That's why I got into soloing, which is problematic, but <laughs> Um, I, but like R wrong use of the term problematic, but, uh, <laughs> problematic for my friends and family. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 But also we had in a uh, previous conversation, you know, one of the reasons that you said that, that, ha that, you know, the, um, attraction to soloing was because I can't afford the actual gear. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, and not content with, you know, bouldering and only getting 15 feet off the ground. Well, then you just keep going. I taught myself how to rope solo. And rope slid some multi pitches in Washington. Mm -hmm. Never anything hard. I took one fall and it's like, nope, I don't want to do this on terrain where I think I might fall. Oh yeah, it's so scary. Yep. Um, and you're so by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Hence the term. <laughs> but then, like, I mean, I don't know. I've I've soloed more roots than I've climbed with a rope for sure. Um, I've, I like see. I'm not like outdoors. Like I've done yeah. a lot of indoor sport, whatever. But yeah. Like especially long routes. I've done some pretty big routes in Montana, you okay. know, like some longer faces. Mm -hmm. Um and like solo reasonably hard ice, not hard rock, like never anything harder than five nine. Okay. Um, but like with ice I'll go up to like WI four and solo that. Yeah. But and also I like when I my justification for that is probably absurd is I get more pumped when I'm putting in a screw than I do climbing. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean we we can organize that in our heads in whatever way. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I I I think that uh, soloing builds good character. I sure hope so. <laughs> I mean, it seems, or, or you uh, only if you have good character are you attracted to the idea of 
soloing. Well, I don't know. It's Chicken its own egg. way of being a true sayer. Yes. Well, like it's um you you can lie about what you've done. You can um you can kind of exaggerate your ability. You can even like build false sense of confidence with climb, especially inside a rock gym, mm-hmm. right? Like how much tension did you put on that safety rope? And there's all sorts of like weird barriers where you're like, Oh, spot me while I make this next hold. There's all sorts of little things that you can fluff or whatever. You get to a free solo thing or a solo thing and you just can't, and you're like, well, if I'm not honest about what I think I can do, you're like, I'm not going to be around to lie about it. It's black and white. 100%. Yeah. It's, yeah. And no, it's obvious. It's either you can do it or you die. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's why it builds good character. Not because I think you, well, <laughs> I do actually think you have to risk something in order to figure out kind of the oh, honesty yeah. or truth about yourself, Yeah, which is, I, I think where we're at with fitness as well. Like um, it kind of, uh, we, <laughs> we kind of relate um, I don't, like the intensity of training in an artificial gym. I mean, it's all safe. There's no lions in here. There's no cars that are going to hit you. There's no, that, something might fall on you or might trip because you're not paying attention. And that's the point. The point is like to pay attention. We, I'm starting to think more and more about training as like, um, uh, like a near miss accident. Right. Yeah. Like if, if that's what snaps me in, I wasn't paying close enough attention. Right. uh, Like I admit, like if you're driving very fast or you're sailing very fast, you're climbing very hard, your attention is very focused. And that's kind of what you want to train it to be like. But if I, if I like slip and that's when my attention starts, it's too late. And so you're trying to like reverse how I apply this attention. I think free soloing or, or things that are inherently dangerous, just focus it ahead of time as opposed to being in a reaction to. Well, you know, it'd be interesting to see how you could train that because like, like with rock climbing, your equivalent to that is slab climbing when it's slightly less than vertical and you have very bad feet and you're mm-hmm. just like, you have to be very, very slow and cautious and mm-hmm. like, put that foot down really slowly and then weight it and trust it. It'd be interesting to see if you could do something with like training and doing some sort of activity where you have to do something on like a balance beam. And then if you fall off, you have to do 10 burpees or something funny like that with some element of risk to like losing that body awareness. So here's the interesting thing. I mean, depending on what you think the risk is, the risk might just be psychological risk, like Mm -hmm. a risk in, in not hitting a standard or failing a certain level of required intensity that that's the risk um i mean especially in an artificially constructed environment like mm -hmm. like the gym is that you know your brain doesn't uh doesn't necessarily depending on how much importance you assign to any task or any your you know place within a specific social group and that kind of thing um you you know the social risk can be equally as intimidating Mm -hmm. um and clarifying as actual physical risk for sure but one thing i wanted uh you had mentioned that you you um never touched a barbell yeah never touched a barbell actually that's a lie i tried to i like i was at the climbing gym my friend's like i bet i can bench more than you i was like okay and like (laughs) that's the end of the discussion right there for me yeah (laughs) it's like yeah you can bye yeah that's pretty much what happened (laughs) okay um so one time i guess but yeah i've you know, like I've never been in, like, it's kind of intimidating to get into the space. I mean, I guess I could go to like a CrossFit gym or something like that. I mean, that, that's which is... so actually funny to hear out loud because this is. Uh, and the t- fascinating, and, and then the follow up to that was like, I did my first one arm pull up the other day. Yeah. Like that's, 
Like, okay, so you're not weak. No. no. But I mean, and yet yeah. you but you have used other means to develop this fitness that's applicable to the to you know to to, to the task which is to go climbing. Well, yeah. I, I was going to say it was funny that you're intimidated by like a, a gym atmosphere but not intimidated by a a rock surface that you could fall off of. Well, the rock surface is not going to make fun of me. <laughs> word <laughs> so, and and there and there in There's what i just said yeah. about like the yeah. social risk depending 100%. on you know your the the perception or your uh whether your position in a group um it's it, it's just as scary mm -hmm. yeah, oh, the, yeah. The, the rock is not actively going to mock you it just mocks you by its very existence you yeah know? In, and even if way, we can't like, help it sometimes like the best coaching cues are these like putting somebody in a social stratification based off of their ability to be body aware right yes. like you'll see it in here all the time like somebody is not aware and they'll get called out and they'll get made fun of not in a way that gets them to stop but in a way that gets them to pay more attention right like and there's the difference like the the uh gym etiquette that is like teasing somebody for a hierarchy of who's cooler and who just doesn't get it. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for uh, a reminder that if you don't pay attention to what's going on, something worse will happen than me just giving you shit for kind of moving like an idiot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, that's, that transitions back into the sailing coaching, mm. you know, like when I like, and I showed you that picture Mark of the three boats all right next to each yeah. other that's their soloing is the is the race you know yeah you either win you lose it's pretty much how it is you know and so the real tough thing recently has been foiling maneuvers so tacking and jiving without touching the water so staying mm. on the foil and so what i've been working with these kids recently is doing mostly foil jibes and so to foil jibe it's like a specific process you cross the boat before you cross the wind because you're, you're steering the boat with your weight because you let go of your tiller. Oh, okay, gotcha, yeah, yeah. So, like, if you think about it, you're heading downwind and your sail's trimmed in all the way because you're going so fast. Yeah. The wind's in front of you again. Yeah. Um. So you head downwind and then you just decide, okay, I'm jiving. And you cross the boat and the boat follows you. And it's, so you're balancing the boat on these two little points and And that's steering specific it. to the foil. It's specific yeah. to the foil, yeah, yes. Because okay. it's like on a... A very rocky. It's a kinda... long lever arm. Yeah, okay. yeah. A lot of weight on a skinny pole. Okay. You know, it's like a, it's like the balancing a stick on your hand. Yeah. With the weight on the end. That's what you're doing. Except you're the weight. Right. Yeah. And, you're yeah. upside down. Weight, yeah. yeah. Um, and you have to come across the boat, and the body awareness and positioning is key. If you do it wrong, you crash. Like you, the foil just like the boat goes bow down, and then we do what's called pitch pulling, and it's just. Get, you can get thrown. I've been thrown like 15 plus feet from the yeah. boat. Just And you hit the water hard. It hurts. Yeah. And so, Whoa. like, we've been talking, like, I, I've been videoing people doing this. And we go in and we talk after them, like, hey, like, what were, where was your left hand when you did that maneuver? And if they say, I don't know, they're going to be way harder to teach that foil jab. Yeah. If they say... It was here because I was thinking about doing this. That is someone who I can teach super easily. Like, hey, you're going to pick that up like this. Because they have the body awareness yeah. already. They understand. Yes. And the, the consequence of not having the body awareness is extreme. I mean, you just crash. Yeah. I mean, this insensitivity. I mean, in those three boats that in that photograph where they're side by side, like, okay, they're not going slowly. 
<laughs> they appear to be fairly close to like it's a it's a precision mm-hmm. yes right. uh, activity and there's also rights of ways that are going on like calling right away okay it's, it was, it's so like somebody, playing chess too sometimes yeah. Okay. Yeah, because if I if I can if I know somebody needs to attack on a certain line and yeah. I delay mine, I ruin their chances, and then I can, you can also steal wind from people, so okay. you can undercut them. Oh, it's so fun! It is fun because you'll stall somebody out. Yeah. If, if you can play the strategy right and you 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 undercut them, you steal their wind and they stall, and you go and you're like, that's how you kind of win certain things. Oh, but yeah. okay. uh, the the body awareness thing, I mean, the sensitivity to your body awareness, like it's funny because you're like you you have. Um, how we're breaking it down essentially when we're trying, no matter what the the kind of uh, task is, you you ultimately most people are looking at the exterior of the expression of their sport, whether it's sail, they think that the sailboat is important, they think that the the sail, the actual mm-hmm. sail, or the components or the materials, and sure, all of that stuff, technology obviously like can amplify, but it it, it will only amplify the user. And it's awareness. So you have... Yes, it's all about your mind. Right, exactly. And I would say, well, I would argue now a little bit differently that it, it is actually not because it is not a logical process. It is a feeling process, right? Mm-hmm. So the the where was your hand question has nothing to do with your brain. Your your brain will answer the question in a logical manner or, or and it can lie about it. It can excuse but it. But you putting the hand there was not a logical... And that's exactly. why I love videoing these kids and saying, what'd you do? And they go, oh, I did this. I'm like, no, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and here I have proof. Yeah. yeah. So you, you bring this back down to in just a simple body control stuff and you start examining how people move their bodies. And a lot of time we would, you know, we used to use exercise selection and movement screens to see how somebody moved. And you would look for obviously limitations and injuries and bad movement patterns. But in reality, like controlling the fine motor stuff, controlling it, like, you can zero in really good. Like we had somebody today in here who's having some back issues, really weird back issue, not just like your standard, like, oh, my back hurts, um, but really weird, like kind of like uh, thoracic junction, upper middle back issues. Okay, interesting. And, and a jujitsu guy. So like interesting, re- really weird. And so, okay, let's like just start moving around, moving some stuff. And upon like getting him to try to do what we call like a thoracic car, just, just controlling the thoracic and a flexion extension and lateral Man, Imagine being able to do that. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and this is where you run into is like, uh, when did this injury happen? Or like, when did you like six months ago? Oh, okay. Like, so you just been pretty neutral trying to calm it down, not trying to like aggravate it. Yeah. Okay. So you have six months of atrophy. Yeah, that's not not just muscularly, but neuromuscularly. Yes, absolutely. You haven't sent a message for six months. Like maybe there's some miscommunication. If you don't talk to somebody for six months and you come out, usually it's taken incorrectly. So you're like, how do you get the messaging to go? Like, how do you just and some of it is visual, but a lot of it is very tactile. And this is where we get away from the mind, because if I tell somebody, okay, you know, move into, you know, lateral lateral flexion left and a lot of the time their mind has no idea what that is, regardless of whether you know the terminology. So get rid of all of the physiology and I, you just try to mimic me. A lot of the time the body can't, it can't communicate. So it turns out really quickly that there's insensitivity into this region in this person's back. And you can amplify this out to, I, I see it goes two ways. You injure something 
and you either numb yourself to it so you don't have to tolerate the pain and you desensitize yourself or you injure something and you become hypersensitive and that's what we call chronic pain and so there's like these two paths that happen one of them is hyper aware and hypersensitive and super vigilant vigilant and the other one is like unaware ready to be injured again because what happens when it atrophies is it's weaker and it's more likely uh, to become injured so you look at all of these tools and the sailboat that's and you, you think about the dynamics that are happening and it really comes down to like do you know where your left hand is mm -hmm. like that? That's like the, the basic structure for pretty much any coaching is like, do you know what every part of your body is doing? And if you don't, would it help you to know that or not? know, but to, I guess, feel that. And I think the answer unequivocally is yes. If I have sensitivity towards every part of my body at all times, I'm more aware of what's going on. I have more sensory feedback to help me make better decisions and, and more timely decisions, I guess. Well, like, well, okay. I have a, so that ties, like, so with my back stuff, I had mm -hmm. back surgery my freshman year of high school and pr took me probably four years to actually come back from that. Mm. Mostly because I wasn't trying to get stronger. Yeah. Like when I decided, okay, I'm going to stop like victimizing myself from having this thing. I'm, you know, like saying, fuck you. I'm going to go climb mountains, you know? Like, and it's okay. How am I going to do that? Spite well, I got to like, yeah, spite's, spite's pretty powerful. Pretty, pretty powerful, yeah. It's like, well, how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to start by like, oh, I'm just going to go do it. And so you go do it and you, you fail a lot. But you like develop that body awareness. And the, the, like, the strength comes back because you, you go, oh, I need, I need to be strong here. Why am I not strong here? And then your, your, body, your brain remembers like, oh, hey, like, there's, there's like two minds. You have the waking mind and the sleeping mind, mm -hmm. and the, they don't speak to each other that well. But like you can definitely work on both of them. Like with like with a mm -hmm. movement, like you know, like thinking about like if I'm grabbing a hold, like where where are my fingers exactly on this hold? Like which crystal is my middle finger on, and how can I make it hit there every time? Yeah, it that's like that connection between your two minds is really key, I think, to being able to execute a movement perfectly like get that the maximum efficiency in a movement yeah because then you become i think what you what you then become is a nervous system for the tools that you're using right so in the boat uh, analogy like you when you walk or move across the plane that you need to it's an extension of your nervous system and well, that's and how you I feel know like this a, like hmm. you get on a boat and it's not it's over trimmed and you know it just feels wrong exactly it's yeah. not like yeah. you cannot necessarily identify like oh the sailing needs to be eased like you yeah. do with time, but you get on the boat and you grab the helm and it just like something feels tight or something feels loose. It just, yeah. it's not right. And but, you, and like you can like extend your feeling into your environment. Yeah. In a really it, you would way. only ever know that if it, if you've been on the rough side of both. Yes. More, so many times that the, when it hits the perfect moment when you're like gliding easily ahead of the wind and you feel how non-resistant everything is it's just free is what we use the, the yeah, term okay. we use. Yeah. yeah yeah it's it's a it's a uh, for lack of a better term it's a sense of flow for you and the tool that you're using mm -hmm. where they're both like they're both in their environment as the way they should be which is like the least amount of resistance and then how do i get back to that your, your nervous system is essentially how do i get back to that system uh and injuries like a, a spine injury is a really good example of that because 
our like knowledge of spinal injuries is very terrible. Our, our advice to heal spinal injuries is probably the worst that it could be. Which don't is, do anything. Don't use it. You're yeah. like, what? Like, no, no, you just stay neutral your entire life and never use your spine again. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like if, if you were gonna get something better, you would never not use it. But how do you use it? So most people go, well, I can't do that. So they ignore everything and then they go full force in both directions and they keep injuring it. Or they never use it until it gets injured again and then they try to use it less or however that works They just make it worse, yeah. Yeah, they just make it worse. Well, it's interesting with spine stuff too. I think climbing has really saved me like from Mm. being injured because it's a cross-body limb connection. Like you're pulling with your arm and pushing with your foot. Yeah. And it's all about core stability and understanding torsion and that really works your mid back yeah and like i think it's really helped me adapt as an athlete like i am significantly better at every other sport i've ever done because than i was before i climbed this is an interesting concept because i think i i would agree like climbing it, not that it's like a fully balanced movement pattern but it is fairly balanced like compare it's obviously over pulling as opposed to pushing which we've always discover, but that's a really easy fix to, to supplement. I think the interesting thing to look at is to try to like understand that your body is falling into chaos, right? So you, like entropy states that your body is going from an organized state to a disorganized state. Yes. That's just, that's what describes time. It's what describes aging. And I'm trying to delay that process as much as possible. Now, if it was an inanimate object, the environment would decide how quickly say that ice tool falls into chaos, which is to mean it decays and falls apart. And it has a certain time. The difference between me and that object is I can, I can delay it, right? It can't move itself and put itself in different environments. I can put myself in in different environments. In fact, I can put myself in different environments and situations, which help me resist the decay of time. And so that, that is what I think that's, kind of in a nutshell what exercise well first of all what our psyche unknowingly knows i guess you could say yeah right? the second the sleeping mind yeah why, why does a jaguar pace right in a cage it's because it knows it needs to keep moving it needs to keep going like there's always you you watch people need to keep moving and keep doing things because it's the natural order of biology to delay entropy and, and that's kind of where, okay, the better movement you can find, the problem that I find is all the things that you end up, end up being your, I guess you could say in, in your, in your terms, your, your non-mind self, like climbing feels a certain way to you is when you pass a certain threshold, it becomes an ampli- amplification of destruction, right? Either very quickly where you fall off the mountain or over time where I over pull my body into decay or I overuse something into this possibility. That that to me is kind of like, why, why would I want to be a jack of all trades as opposed to a specialist, which I think you're, you're hitting on with like all of these different movements, sailing, running, climbing, uh, surfing, it sounds like I just assumed because not you, well. Okay, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I just how you talked about waves. I'm like, okay, you probably surf too. But there's there's these um, there's these elements where if I find the right balance, I can I can reduce the decay, and that's kind of what I'm aiming for with it. And the more sensitive I am, the better I'll be at all of those things. I guess is kind of how I look at it. I don't know physics. 
Mark and I were just talking about overtraining, and we like we just had a gr- really interesting discussion about like the fitness industry and you know working all the time. And I like I feel like I don't train that much. Yeah. I train very little. Yeah, and I take rest days all. I I hate taking rest days, but I force myself to take them all the time. Yeah, and I think I've worked. It's worked out in my favor because I'm not fatigued as much. Yeah, and like when I'm like when I'm doing a workout, I want to feel great. I, I feel shitty like a third of the time and mediocre a third of the time and great like a third of the time. But See, you and I learned to train differently. I trained so that I could like not hate myself so much, which meant like punishing myself. Which is part of what we were talking about. Oh, okay. is the, 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 it, not necessarily that that is a motivation, but mm-hmm. the, the actual act of I need to keep grinding. I mm-hmm. need to do this every day. If I don't train for two days, I'm going to be less fit. I lost yeah. it all. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, because people, again, and uh, it's, it's the interval nature of all <laughs> things. You know, it's stress, recover, compensate. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people just want to do the stress part. Yeah. Because there is a... It's fun. Because um, that's the part you can control. Fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and it's also the part you can talk yourself into uh, believing has greater value than it does. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Because you're actually doing rather than not doing. Yeah. Um, it, but all of that not doing uh, that you are perceiving with your mind is um, happening at the same time that your body is very actively doing something mm. on its own without any, you know, without guidance on its own. You yeah. know, your job then is only, hey, supply the resources. Yeah. Supply the quiet. Which I hate <laughs> doing. It's awful. But like... Oh, the yeah. supplying the resources? Well, or that's, the rest? I like eating. But <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But it's supplying the quiet. Yeah, know, it's the, like the not, the, the, the not moving, you know, like... I don't know. I have a hard time sleeping because I keep thinking about things and like want to go like. like I'm if, totally shocked. If, like the, the, the day before, the day before I am like the most recovered to do something, or even the three days before I'm the, like the best prepared to do a route that I've been wanting to do for a while or whatever. I will barely sleep just because yeah. I'll like have like I'll want to be moving. Like yeah. I'll I'll feel like I can't it, sit still. But that that is a sign that you you did it correctly. Right, this antsiness, like this is like, if you're not antsy the week before an event or a competition or the thing that you've been preparing for, you probably overcooked it, mm-hmm. right? You, you like, especially depending on on the style of event, but long, probably nine days before, you should start getting that like, God, I want to get like, I have enough to do it because the taper should have started, right? And then something short, for sure, a week out, everybody should be pretty much kind of recovered and you're like buzzing. jonesing yeah. yeah and then three days yeah. before you should be vibrating out of your body oh yeah because you've built up this kind of this ability that is not being used and it wants to get out yeah you've built up the habit of ex, of, of spending that energy mm-hmm. yeah and in the you know the the run-up you're just accumulating yeah yeah <laughs> I think that's been pretty normal for me. Almost all competitions, like I do not sleep well. And to the and this is kind of on the point of like knowing your wave cycle is really interesting. Like I fucked it up on the last competition that we did just because we were traveling and I couldn't we couldn't really control anything. I was driving with Trevor. And so my my training oh, schedule right, yeah. should start to mimic a certain wave. And so because we push everything towards the end of the week to start like uh, that's where most of the intensity and the volume happens. Mm-hmm. 
and the beginning of the week is very light and it's like movement based and it's very in the air and then it starts to build and build until like Thursday, Friday and Saturday are hard training. And then Sunday is kind of recovery long stuff. And then Monday might be a day off, but sometimes if you feel good, you'll go for it. Tuesday, sketchy. Wednesday, start to build. Thursday, hard. Friday, hard, hard. Saturday, hard again. And then back off. So you get this wave cycle that you start to notice how you respond. And so when you go to compete and I have a competition on Saturday and Sunday, um, man, if I don't pay attention to that cycle, I'm going to have a very flat f- a Saturday. Yeah. And so how I would normally do it, and I know this about competitions, like the day before competition, I would actually do something hard, right? On my own. I've now, that, yeah. not exhausting. Like I wouldn't want to tap resources, but I would definitely want to feel intensity and I would, would, I would want to breathe hard, flex hard, it focuses your mind. It sharpens everything. Exactly. Yeah. So when you're on competition day, you're mm. not like distracted because you're vibrating so violently. It's just that you are, you're more present. Yeah. And I'm not cold. I'm not cold yes. starting. So when I start a competition on Saturday and I didn't move around how I should have, my body is going, something's wrong. Now it's starting the cycle. If I haven't moved for two days, it's starting. I feel like it's a Wednesday. Like which it's is ease easy. back into it cycle. Yeah. yeah. And that's just me. A, a bunch of people might respond differently, but it's just my, my wave of things. So Saturday, it's I have a terrible you performance. Openers the day before you race. Exactly. Which yeah. I couldn't do because we yeah. were driving yeah. <laughs> for 10 hours or 12 hours or whatever it yeah. ended up being. Regardless, it's a, it's a very interesting point to start to notice your own cycles and then to understand why you might have soft performances or good performances on unexpected days and then try to tune those cycles to overmap on your objectives. So it's one of the hardest things to do, but probably one of the most useful. Yeah, and then if you try to map that on top of variable conditions yeah you <laughs> yeah. say in the mountains or, or potentially yeah. you know uh on the water um yeah you have a you have a something thrown in that is not normally mm. uh, there in, in more controllable you know artificial competitions yeah say. i was not ready to breathe in all that dirt yeah <laughs> yeah but there's not really training for that no you can <laughs> we can make that happen <laughs> yeah, you end up with like what, what's the disease the black, black lung, lung? I, yeah. oh, what's it? I was gonna say that what was the tuberculosis mnemona ultramicroscopic silicone vicaniconiosis is the technical term oh, for yeah. black lung <laughs> I did not know that but uh, I like <sighs> random weird facts I mean, that the I remember black lung from. is also the title of a great track by US Christmas which is a band that no longer exists unfortunately but I've never heard of that band Oh, What's you will it? soon. Yeah, right. Well, this is how it happens. Mark sends yeah. me down a wormhole of music, and you're like, "Oh shit!" What was the oh. um? What was the last one you sent me? The girl who's the composer, uh, the Anna House. Anna, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. man. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ! I've been on. Here's that. the launch point. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> so U.S. Christmas. Nate Hall came from U.S. Christmas. He was the he was the vocalist. They they made two records. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's, I don't know, Appalachia post metal drone rock. Oh, um, that really is, fucking That is good. a genre. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what, if it, what, what they would call it, but that's kind of where I'm at. Um, uh, I'll send you, okay. I'll send you there. Um, do you play any instruments? I used to, I used to be really into it. And then when I had my surgery, I mm-hmm. like 
just like couldn't do it anymore. It was it like wasn't a physical thing. It was just a mental, like an emotional thing. Like something about playing an instrument puts yourself out there so emotionally. Like you oh, yeah. are, you're putting your heart in your fingers. Yeah. And after, like I I should get back into it. I really need to. But guitar, I take it. Uh, guitar, some piano, like mostly ukulele because I was in Hawaii at ukulele, the time. Ukulele, yeah. And then uh, like, yeah, it's just there's something so raw about oh for sure making a sound that I, like it just it just after my surgery it hurt too much i'm just thinking with anymore. your woodworking and the stuff like man instrument building would be good for you oh my goodness it's i've i've looked into it it's it's so beautiful how, oh, yeah. how they like like luthiers are amazing mm. amazing craftsmen and i i wish i could be on that level like yeah. it is incredible what they do yeah God, i wish sure. you could you saw travis's mandolin yeah, that right. he built as his senior uh senior project yeah um he yeah taught himself to, and he built a mandolin and it's yeah. really remarkable it's, beautiful. it's really beautiful yeah it's so yeah. crazy yeah that i mean that music that's one thing that i wish i picked up earlier was like that that was a a unifying i only mentioned because mark's knowledge of like music is so intimate and he's so like attached to it and i was always just a consumer of music like i bought it i listened to it all the time but i never I never deep dived down anything. Like I couldn't tell you the lead singer's name of anything. I couldn't tell you the history of any of the music I listened to. It was generally like, yeah, it's in this genre and it sounds like black death metal. But <laughs> other, other than that, I couldn't in, until, until fairly recently where music became like a big part of it. But I think honestly, it's improved uh, not just sensitivity towards, you know, some psychological things. It's improved sensitivity, especially to touch. Yes. Like body mechanics and uh, like especially when you start singing, you have to organize your vocal cords and your lungs in a positions where you can actually get different sounds out. And and then coordinating that with like very subtle touches of either drums or or uh, guitar or something. It's like changing it your posture changes your voice. A hundred percent. Like it's like it's like millimeters. Yeah. And yeah, like sure. I think I think doing stuff like that is so good for someone as an athlete yeah. to to focus on like millimeters of any of whatever it is you're doing like yeah. millimeters or like I try to like when I'm having a like if I'm having let's say I'm having a tough day mm-hmm. I like to go outside and I just sit there and I just like all right I'm gonna I'm gonna notice things right now and I'll get there I'll be like oh that cloud is like like the edge is so well defined or like it blends well and like I, I or like I'll feel like actively feel the wind or mm-hmm. feel the chair I'm sitting on like push up into me it's Bro, like, you're zen and you didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's like yeah. focusing on like the the minutia makes huh? you better in the in the general movement in the global movement. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is something. One of those essays in Poison has a has a, the photography reference, but it's also something that I found super useful just in life is the, like the, the the zoom in zoom out. So mm-hmm. like you, yeah, I'm going to focus on the minutia. I'm going to zoom in onto these very fine details and then open up and find that I am globally or you know wide angle more sensitive to stuff. And it and all of that focus shifting started. I mean, it, it happens naturally with climbing because you have to focus very intently on some very small things, but then you also need to be, you know, shift out and be really aware of your environment. 
you could take it down to trail running even where yeah. you you know you focus in you take the snapshot of what's 10 or 15 feet down the road you know <laughs> in front of you and then you zoom out and notice yourself in space and then you feel the thing that you just took the picture of pass mm -hmm. under your feet and then you focus again back down on the trail and it, like it was it's constantly in shifting in out narrow wide that um i think is uh, well, maybe it is. Maybe that is Zen. I there, don't know. There's not a day that I don't think about what you originally said um, about uh, moving in the mountains of how to zoom in and zoom out, but at a very low energy cut, like learning learning the tempo at which you zoom in, zoom out. Mm -hmm. There's not a time that goes by that I'm not riding a mountain bike that I don't think about that because it's <laughs> it becomes so... Well, again, that's the near miss accident, right? Because the second you get it wrong, you're like, oh my God, I'm off the trail. Yeah. Like, you're like it just immediately punishes you, which is a... Or you overcook something or you're too focused on the bigger view so you didn't... You forgot to lift your foot and you hit the foot on the stump, uh, yeah. which is so... The most aggravating accident you can make on a mountain bike you're like clunk you don't it doesn't do anything to you it just scares the shit scares out of the you. Shit and you just realize wow i'm really clumsy <laughs> yeah. and then you stop something interesting there and then like you overreact to this thing that scared <laughs> to, to the fear mm -hmm. of so it, an innocuous event put you in this condition of fear <laughs> and then you over respond to the fear yeah and then you actually cause a more meaningful accident yeah which when I first started climbing uh, and I was talking with one of my mentors about problem solving mm. and, you know, over the, and this, there's a reason they call it overcorrecting. <laughs> and the, and the funny thing is that the analogy that he used, um, and I don't know why he knew this came from, uh, came from sailing and it had to do with boom travel, I th and and something going wrong, and that the and the the you have to accept that the boom is 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 going to go in the opposite direction. It's not going to stop at neutral in the middle. It's going to move all the way across. But your job is to slow down the amplitude of that movement, and. And that's how you respond to anything in the mountain. Any kind of overreaction in those situations always leads to more, yeah. tr more trouble. Yeah, you see that sailing on like these foiling boats and, too. And is they bounce, and the kids are like, Ugh! and then oh, yeah. you get what like what pilots call PIO, pilot induced oscillation. Uh, yeah, that. Yeah, and uh, it's it's just it just keeps going. Induced oscillation. <laughs> I have that all the time on a mountain bike. I have it all the time <laughs> when I'm like walking around. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, yeah, it is. It's a kind of this like. Well, you play that, so we we play that game in jujitsu. You try, you try to amplify somebody's reaction, right? Like so, if they push, keep them pushing. Uh, well, or, if if I pull, you don't, you just don't like the sensation. You think that I want you to come towards me, but really, I want you to go back. So you do, you do the opposite of what you want somebody to do. Interesting. So if I want somebody to come towards me, uh, I'll push them away, and they'll lean into it. So that'll give me the thing. Oh, that I want. okay, I see. Right, so it's like if I want them, uh, if I, if I, if if I need them away, I'll push them to make space, push, pull, push, pull, and that's kind of like you're always constantly doing this because somebody can't. Well, somebody who's insensitive uh, will not be able to respond to everything at once, and then it might not work on the first time, it might not work on the second time, but it will always work on the third time. 
every single time. You can't, it's just like, it's the school bus effect, right? The school bus is correcting, you go one way, and then I go the other, and then on the third one, it goes all the way. Every single time. Womp, yeah. womp, and over. There's a reason it's called overcorrecting. Yes. Because there's yeah. no, like, it just doesn't, the, the, those oscillations that never, like, I want it to stop in the middle so that yeah. I can be on my way straight down the straight road. Yeah. But, um, man, I lost the back end about three or four overcorrections <laughs> ago. And I'm just tomahawking. I, and, and now I can, and I can't reduce my amount of input without an, at, a, an appropriate level of sensitivity. So, so now take people's life choices yes. and just map that over the top of it. And you see the overcorrection effect kind of everywhere. Yeah. I, we hear it from people pretty much every day. They're like, okay, I want to get fit. Or like, okay, I'm done being a, oh, okay, man, my diet is shit. And you're like, well, if we come at this how the person wants to come at it, it's just going to be another overcorrection thing. I think yeah, and they're never going to stick with it. You know, it's like never. it's like the people who like get on a diet and then they like they fully strict. Like you know, I'm not eating. Like let's just say I'm not going to eat anything. I'll never eat sugar again. Yeah, that never happens. No, no, that would be impossible. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and it would. It, it, and a, it would just make you miserable in the short term that you could maintain your idea of what you think sugar is and realistically yeah. in the long term you're not going to get any, you're going to get probably some detriment from that from a violent change in your diet yeah you see, for a short you amount of time bang off the edges if you're penduluming i mean this is kind of what i think you see with people is like a they're so exhausted from doing extreme overcorrections and insensitized to actual steering like imagine somebody who somebody i look at it this way <laughs> imagine teaching somebody to to drive a race car who has only ever driven a car that's been in an accident, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's most people's diets. You're yeah. like, you want to fine tune wow. your ability and you're going to like, I like this. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that th this is kind of how I feel. Well, with exercise too, or people who are injured, you could say the same thing that people, the, I mean, we saw this with um, one of the girls that comes in here. Um, on, she would train, you know, become more sensitive, do all the things, but nothing re really on kind of the, not surface because she, she would do the thing, but you could tell that the interest was probably only in the hour that she was here, right? Like the, the hour for the class twice yeah. a week, something like that. Two hours a week. She's interested in improving herself, but that two hours of investment you know, maybe in 10 years, there would be like a payoff, but you're not going to see something super major payoff, especially in the year that she had been here. And then she got injured. And then she was in here every day because now it's important. Yeah. Right. And you go good because good habits start somewhere. And, and maybe potentially this is the start of something, but it was also like <laughs> many I hope you understand what this looks like to the outside, right? Which is, this is a huge overcorrection because it shouldn't be every day. It should be more than what you did, but less than what you're doing because you'll never, uh, you're just going to overdo it. You're going to get injured again. Yeah. In probably the same place you got injured before because that's kind of how it works. Ugh. I've never been injured yeah. other than the obvious. Right. But that wasn't my fault. Yeah, yeah, it was just gen yeah. your spine thing was scoliosis. Yep. Okay, and I'll show you guys the extras later. Full fusion. Uh, yeah, uh, twenty-two screws, eleven vertebrae, and then I have some vertebrae in my neck. I have uh, let's see, I'm missing C1, 
because I got removed from my brain surgery. And then C2 and 3 are fused together, and C5 and 6 are fused together for whatever reason. Crazy. Yep. And then my fusion goes from C7 to L2. Yeah. I mean, so I would say, I could be wrong on this, but man, there's no reason for you to use a barbell because you couldn't articulate your spine in a way that would help um, help use that tool to make you better. Right. If you think about it, like the barbell is a very rigid, non-movable object. So is your spine. So what are you training? You're just like bumping hard things against each other is how I would look at it. I could be wrong, but um, that's somebody who uses a barbell. would be like, man, that would probably be the inappropriate application of a tool. Uh, you could bench press. You'd be okay, but you know. So it's really interesting. The yeah. the more interesting thing about... I've had some advantages come from having my spine fused. Okay. Not necessarily like great ones, but let's say like <laughs> somewhere applicable to climbing. So I had it fused when I was uh, 13, 14, 14. Um, so I was still growing. So oh. my, but my spine didn't grow anymore, but my limbs kept growing. So I have a plus 10 ape index. Oh, no shit. So my wingspan is six foot six. Whoa. That's the long... That That's, is crazy. Which That's is awesome climbing sometimes. The longest I've ever swimming too. Heard of. I, I can't swim very well because I can't twist well. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And I feel like yeah. I'm drowning every yeah. time I try to like, yeah. Because Aaron has a plus nine ape index. Yeah. And yeah. She's long, but and what's funny is like the first time I took her climbing to a climbing gym, she climbed like a V6. Granted, it was all biceps, but. <laughs> she just like pulled her way up just there. reached past the holds that were unuseful <laughs> yeah, exactly. but that that's a that's a that's a that's a sturdy reach advantage yeah it's pretty awesome wow yeah crazy your spine quit growing add a 50 plus centimeter tool on the uh onto the end into yeah that. right <laughs> yeah it's pretty awesome yeah it makes stuff like like obviously like pull-ups harder mm -hmm. but sure yeah. but it's not that big a deal you know like I'd yeah. rather pull off of something that's good than pull really hard on something that's bad. Sure. Yeah. That's hilarious, actually. Do you guys mind if I use the bathroom real quick? No, we can. No, I, no. Feel, I mean, we can wrap it up. Yeah. We're two hours. I in. mean, yeah, that was that was an the hour, two hour and mark? 50. Sometimes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Didn't feel like that long. I know. Yeah. Time flies kind of in here, but it is getting to that point where the air gets stale because the AC hasn't kicked on in a while. Yeah. So it's a little bit hot, but um, you know, how do you, do you want people to find you, know about you? Uh, sure, I guess. Uh, where would they Where would they find you? Uh, let's see. I have an Instagram, which is like my personal Instagram is just my name, Connor McCarlis, okay. one word. And then I have like stuff that's for like the ice climbing stuff or the tools. I guess is McCarlis Design, also all one word. Okay. But like, I'm 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 on both, I guess. But yeah, cool. I'm well. You have more screws in your body than I have in mine, so apparently I have no excuse to not start ice climbing again yeah you don't <laughs> hey it'll actually it might and help you with the calf pump on that one side I, I exactly i'm you know honestly now like the the in my couple of hours a day when i'm walking actively without the boot on um going up and down things is going to be kind of interesting just because of the uh i'll have to Flexion, you know, the lack of flexion yeah, yeah. is, <laughs> the, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, the absence of. But honestly, I, th I think you know the, this calf, uh, you know, has atrophied quite a lot. Um, I don't really. Expect How are you going to work that? Like, if you can't I'm, move your ankle, yeah, I, I don't know. Huh, I don't know. Right. I don't think it'll go away entirely, because there is some forefoot flexion that 
that moves it. There's, but there's not really a way to, you know, I can't stretch can, it can in you the internal, external, um, from the knee. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, there's just certain. Well, it's got the boot on it, but the, um, yeah, certain things won't be won't be available. But then there may be there may be uh, unforeseen advantages. Yeah, <laughs> we'll find those. The foreseen advantage is I'm no longer in excruciating pain when I walk. That's pretty that's awesome. Actually, that's not a bad one. Yeah, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, I, so I mean, I thank you for making contact. Of course, and being willing. And I and I really uh, yeah I, I quite look forward to um, putting some of my spirit into the spirit that you already imbued these tools with by having made them from scratch. It's really something. I'm excited I, to see it. I, I thank you. Like it wasn't so much about like giving you the tool; it was more about giving you the experience of putting the tool in like that's that's what the tool's being shaped for it's not yeah i don't care if you can climb really really hard on the tool but if if every time you stick that tool in you get like a little smile or just mm -hmm. you feel a little bit lighter that's what i want thank you thank you i'm wow i will put them to use yeah. awesome yeah and, thanks uh, connor yeah Thank you guys for having me here and showing me around. Yeah, absolutely. thank you guys for producing some awesome media and doing some really cool things. You're very welcome. Well, we try. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I think we try. Like, yeah. Sometimes we try hard. Just <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> for sure. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I'll be looking forward to seeing what you do. I like. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. This seems too similar to not be funny to me. It's I, like the background. It was weird. a remarkable yeah. sort of convergence <laughs> I, that I had not in, had anticipated. Yeah. It no. seems like you like your dad, though. No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the only difference. Yeah. We'll see what we'll see what happens. You know, like I'm kind of at this transition point in my life right now. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. halfway through moving back home, trying to figure out what it is I want to keep doing or keep pushing at. And yeah. Yeah. If you guys have any suggestions on what to do, let me know. Well, I was just going to say that if, you know, if climbing the, the Slovak or something or similar routes like that, um, there's a sort of geographic imperative yes. to that. And I think Hawaii is kind of on the opposite end of it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Pro probably, but you can get really fit there. And it's, kind of in the middle of nowhere which means it's in the middle of everywhere you know like yeah it's it's shorter flight to patagonia than it is to you know like the midwest oh yeah oh yeah um and it's <laughs> and uh yeah people would there's and there's direct flights to anchorage i'm sure because i know that a lot of you know certain time time of the year a lot of alaskans when uh yes, they yeah. wanted to see actual sunlight would go to hawaii go to hawaii yeah nice yeah we're Good luck. Get Thank after you. it. Yeah.